Hidely Holy Podcast Arenas. What is going on? Welcome to the Mahamakam Podcast, a now fortnightly philosophy and lifestyle podcast exploring deep topics for your personal growth and development. This week is a very special episode because I've got one of my favourite writers, public thinkers, educational psychologists, Dr. Zachary Stein, aka Zach Stein, who is just such a legend at the moment in the kind of meaningful YouTube online space and a great source of inspiration. And in this podcast, really, I know it, it might not appeal to everybody, to be honest, but what I was kind of hinging on or trying to get to is, you know, how the technology behind social media could be used for the greatest educational device of the 21st century or the greatest educational revolution of the 21st century and i i know zach understands education and understands human development in ways that would take a person their entire life to understand so that's really what this conversation is centered around you know schooling and technology how the education system is failing and what can be done about it in the 21st century and what that would look like so if those things appeal to you this is going to be a hell of a podcast for you. Um, as always, if you want to follow along, click follow on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, wherever you're listening, join in. And uh, yeah, let's keep figuring it out. Boat. So Zach, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, quick plug, education in a time between worlds. I'll put it in the show notes. If you're interested in education, the future, technology, society, and just really informative essays, definitely get a copy of it because it's been blowing my mind. And yeah, I suppose so to start off with, like it's something I talk about a lot on this because... I've been in the education system for 23 years or whatever else, and I think a lot of people share my perception that it's not fitting the bill. It's not kind of the world's changing too quickly. There's too much going on. Um, if you could even give just a quick summary of what you think the what the issue with the education system is in the 21st century, just for people who are joining us. Mm. <laughs> It's a huge question. Right? There are there are many yeah. issues. Um, when when people say that, when they say there's issues with the educational mm -hmm. system, usually what they mean is more specifically school systems. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the place I usually begin these conversations: is say <clears throat> there are school systems, and then there's education. And education is a broader social function that includes the media, and museums, and presidential speeches. Uh, and even things, certain laws that affect affect human capacity. <clears throat> so, I would say both are in crisis. Both the schools and the broader educational commons, I would call it, of institutions that shape people, even though they're not schools and provide places where education takes place, like a museum uh, or again like a media outlet. Uh, and so, the schools, in particular, I diagnose in the book and. Uh, speak to what I would summarize now in a slightly different language um, 
patterns where you invest in a certain way of solving a problem, let's say standardized testing. Um, and taking that approach to solving the problem <clears throat> makes the problem worse. <laughs> uh, and this is a common pattern that occurs in institutions when they pass their prime. And this guy, uh, Tainter, um, he made a model of civilizational collapse. Mm -hmm. And it talks about diminishing returns on investment in complexity, where you build an institution and you invest a little bit and you create a little bit of complexity and it solves huge problems. And then you like our public school systems after world war two were an incredible innovation, um, <clears throat> changed the world. Um, and we can talk about when schools were working, uh, and even when the fourth estate to go broader when the fourth. estate. Yeah. Passed, that's kind of the other aspect of education. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Exactly. But now we're into a situation <laughs> yeah, where neither so of those are I was going to say well. that both of them are malfunctioning. <laughs> right? and, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so with the standardized testing in, in the United States, mm -hmm. at least, uh, no child left behind and then Obama's race to the top and other policies where we were using testing to solve a problem. It was actually making the problem worse, but we couldn't detect that it was making the problem worse. <laughs> uh, so, so it was like this vicious feedback loop. And so we have, um, yeah, in a, in a major way kind of failed with our largest scale educational institutions, the large urban school districts, um, I would say in the United States in part testing, but also largely from a, a devaluation of teaching and learning. Um, so, well, yeah. that's something that you, Oh, no, sorry. No, that, yeah, that you touch on that really struck me in the book, which isn't really spoken about, but is definitely pervasive is teacherly authority. And, the issue around the kind of bureaucratic structures of schools whereby teacherly authority is kind of, you know, you're in the system, so that's why you have yeah. to kind of respect the teacherly authority as opposed to, I don't know if you'd agree with this categorization, but it came across to me as something like respect and best good intention meeting kind of competence. Yeah. Um, it, it reminded me of martial arts mm -hmm. because I do a lot of martial arts and your instructor in martial arts is a much more of that kind mm -hmm. of relationship. It's not like a bureaucratic kind of right. thing. Um, and yeah, I guess how do we, it's again, a massive question that's probably too, but um, how do we start to transition to where teacherly authority, you know, what's going to be the new home of teacherly yeah. authority? Is there yeah, that's yeah. a great And how does question. that connect? Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> and the, the dojo is an interesting example, right? I don't know if that's the right term, given your martial yeah. art, but the sense being, the yeah. sense being <laughs> that, like, there's non-institutionalized teacherly authority, right? Um, and then there's institutionalized, mm. bureaucratized teacherly authority, which is what most people associate with teaching. And so, again, we reduce education and teaching to schooling <laughs> uh, when in fact those are broader categories. And so like parenting, for example, is an, ex is a case of non-institutionalized teacherly authority. Like, uh, you know, teachable moments come up. <laughs> the parent is the primary effect, especially in early childhood of education. Uh, and so that sense that there's a, there's a responsibility to understand the dynamics of non-institutionalized teacherly authority um, and to get that the proxy for that, which is bureaucratized teacherly authority. <clears throat> um, if that starts to degrade, the suspicion of teacherly authority in general seeps throughout the culture and it gets hard to actually 
have reasonable conversations in non-institutionalized contexts where teacherly authority needs to be wielded, but karate or martial arts or well, or that's what I was going to say, yeah. Or outward bound type stuff where there's an obviously demonstrable differential incapacity to solve an issue that mm -hmm. both parties are interested in solving. Um, and so you have that, what's that, what I call an epistemic asymmetry, right? You know more than me. We both know that. We both want me to learn more. <laughs> uh, and we're both interested in actually obsoleting that relationship of uh, asymmetry, which is to say, like, the good teacher wants the student <clears throat> to actually understand what they know and to surpass them. Because ultimately it's about intergenerational transmission of key skills and capacities. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, understanding those dynamics of like, well, how do you know when there's a situation of legitimate, non-institutionalized teacherly authority? And what does that feel like? <clears throat> it's a key question because mm -hmm. right now many people are getting a bad taste for learning and the dynamics of teaching and learning because they're just collapsing those to what ha happens in schools and not realizing that every time they're on YouTube or engaging with a media environment or talking to an elder or even talking to a peer who has different experiences, there are opportunities to see teacherly authority, both legitimate and illegitimate, <laughs> uh, false prophets yep. and disinformation and a whole bunch of other stuff prey upon this instinct for teacherly authority. That's exactly the thread I wanted to pick up on as well, which is bringing in the informational technologies. It's something you kind of, that you touch on also in the book, which is the kind of the spiritual mentor, I suppose, that's coming about in digital spaces a lot. And that there's the kind of, I don't know if you call it guru culture or whatever, but people looking for this teacherly authority and how the informational spaces, particularly on social media and things like that, you end up with influencers and you get... It's kind of a fishy area for teacherly authority. It's a strange kind of because there is that asymmetry of information or asymmetry of knowledge. Um, but what? how is the asymmetry of knowledge when it comes to life and, say, you know, philosophy and really ethics, you know, how to live, how should you live, um, that that question is being addressed informationally? Would you ever, would you say that there is room for intervention or algorithmic kind of influence on that i don't know if because then authority becomes conflated with success on the site i suppose mm -hmm. um, right i mean yeah i don't know what you think about yeah that. the the first point to make is that this category of teacherly authority like in the domain as we were talking about of martial arts or mm -hmm. <clears throat> auto mechanic you know skill um you know it's like you can tell in that context, like I said, obviously demonstrable differential incapacity. So like both people are like, well, totally. I have no idea how to fix that car. You know, it's scared. obvious. In these other domains, which are very important culturally, these domains of religious and spiritual mm -hmm. teacherly authority, which humans have always had since time immemorial. We've always had both technical teacherly authority and spiritual worldview disseminating religious practice influencing teacherly authority and so but how do you demonstrate right now prior cultures had they were usually they were tests <laughs> you know um uh, yeah. if someone's willing to only meditate basically all day in a cold place up in the mountains never have sex eat not that much food right study all day argue with dudes about abstract questions that's all they and that's all they do <laughs> and they do that for yeah. 30 years so. you know what i'm saying 
Like, okay, like, let respect. me listen to you, right? You're, <laughs> and I'm just saying, and then you're a young person, you did ayahuasca a couple of times, you had some powerful experiences, but you yeah. need to make money doing something that's not going to destroy your soul. So you get up and into kind of an advertisement based attention capture model of building a guru brand around this need for speech or mm-hmm. spiritual teacherly authority. Um, so that's called a false mm-hmm. prophet. <clears throat> it usually does not end mm-hmm. well. Um, but the culture lacks the ability to make some of those distinctions because of the nature mm-hmm. of the tools at people's disposal. So you can keep yourself out of a situation of having to actually walk the talk of claiming to have more advanced mm-hmm. spiritual teacherly authority. Whereas in other contexts, when you have a strong tradition, let's say monastic tradition, it's like, okay, man, you can talk that way, but let's... Let's actually do the work of living together in monastic contexts. And how strong yep. is your ethic then after six months, nine months, three years, mm-hmm. five years, right? Um, and so deep commitment, uh, not superficial commitment, mm-hmm. uh, and the ability to exercise mm-hmm. moral conscience in contexts that actually matter. <clears throat> and so, yeah, what you're pointing to is a kind of predatory instinct that the information environment allows to seep into these places where there should be a lot more kind of uh, for lack of a better phrase, integrity and purity in the trans in, in the transmission <laughs> yeah. of, of these important, uh, these key concepts. So of like worldview and, and religion. And particularly because of the issues around scalability, I think, I mean, there's just never been such an opportunity to just pump out nonsense to people at, on mm-hmm. mass. Um, but something interesting that I'm hearing you say in there is that the, the lack of an ethical framework in our society makes it very different, difficult to qualitatively mm-hmm. distinguish between these Precisely. teachers. Yeah. And like the not, and the, yeah. the absence mm-hmm. of those rituals and um, kind of thresholds and gateways of capacity that were recognized in prior cultures, <clears throat> you know? Um, and so in, in the absence of that, it's very difficult to get a sense of, What's this person mm-hmm. worth in terms of their claim to, you know, have legitimate teacherly authority in this domain? And again, and in this domain mm-hmm. being a religious, spiritual domain, which is arguably the most important domains that humans operate on. You know, once we've figured out how to feed ourselves and other things, yeah. it's like we worry, what is life actually about? What makes me a good or bad person? How do I, you know, move towards yeah. improving myself and helping what does it even mean to help? Um, so, you know, and so, yeah, so I think you're seeing it as a very important problem and it is. And, and Well, yeah, that the issue, it was something that really stuck out to me about your work that just drove home to me completely that like something which I generally felt and experienced, I suppose, be growing up secular and going through a kind of secular education system is, you know, where is the ethical education? Where does it fit in, in a secular society? Right. For me, it actually came from martial arts. It came from a foundation right. of, in ninjutsu, there's kind of an ethical philosophy, which is questionable at times because it involves, like, assassinations and stuff. So I don't know if that's applicable. But um, it's kind of, it's interesting. It fascinates me because I think a lot of the wokeness and the issues with, like, you know, the polarization and stuff, also the tribalism is because of the ethical confusion, the need for a person to tell you, right from wrong because we don't have any kind of institution Mm -hmm. doing it. And and again, back to, 
you know, the schools, modern schools, the modern state, the separation of church from state, you know, the whole idea and the whole actually advancement, if you will, of the public school was that it was secular. And, but what it did was it relied upon these other dimensions of education taking place in the home around the dinner table and at church on Sunday, right? And there's always been this little through line in critical theory about modernity that modernity actually relied upon the pre-modern remnants of the religious traditions to support its people. Um, and so you s- separate church and state and you say, okay, we do that, you know, but there needs to be uh, in an actual thriving religious and ethical culture in the country. And so the founding fathers in the United States were very explicit about that. They were essentially saying, um, <clears throat> you know, you need to press free press <laughs> and highly educated and actively religious, which means having answers to those questions about of ultimate concern, let's mm-hmm. say. Uh, and in the absence of that and in the failure of educational systems more broadly, even to distribute competence in technical areas, uh, <laughs> yeah. then you're, you're really up a Creek without a paddle as it were, if you're trying to, if you're trying to run the government, <laughs> yeah. um, democratically. You're trying to have a functioning democracy, uh, which is another thread line, which is the threat of informational technologies to democracy mm-hmm. and something which I know I, I don't know if you saw uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger and Tristan Harris on Joe Rogan's podcast recently. They actually mentioned you and your work on it as well. Um, and they were put I mean, all the research I've done on social media, it's just like the evidence that it's damaging democracy is so overwhelming mm-hmm obvious and so pervasive but so kind of impossible to deal like unless you switch it off i mean there's it it really got me wondering you know what are the technologies that would increase democracy Mm -hmm. and then the point you're making about democracy which is that it's this education people have to be educated they have to have some sort of ethical foundation and they have to be engaged Mm -hmm. um and what would the technology be like? You know, how would it have to change to do that? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, <clears throat> and that's the way to go. And we can have people go watch that podcast of Joe Rogan's if you want the critique, right? And one of the concerns there was like, well, how the hell do we get out of this? And so there's no... Right? <laughs> yeah, there it was. It's like, what do we... Have? What the hell? Because like, it's frightening. What's it's the right out? Because like, just to be a little frightening mm-hmm. for a little bit longer, and then we'll talk about where to go, but... <clears throat> so we talk about the gurus, the people making themselves into gurus. Imagine artificial intelligences making themselves into gurus, right? I think that's already think happening, to inevitable. be honest, more yeah. more than we think. Um, that Yeah, a lot of people like Stuart Russell, one of the, the guy who wrote the book on AI, talks about the social media algorithms that like it's basically incentivized it to make people addicted. Right. That's the equivalent of success. So. If it adapts and gets better, it makes people more right. addicted. And right. you know, who's pulling the strings? Really? Yeah. But yeah, yeah no, no. Then that's the point to make is that like the um, we don't know what is happening when we're staring at our screen and scrolling through our various news feeds across mm-hmm. social media and and even mainstream media at this point um, because of the mm-hmm. attention capture kind of uh, what Zuboff would call yep. surveillance capitalism dynamics at the heart of the of the of the business model basically behind big tech um, and yep. so one thing to think about is uh well there's many things to think about here but one thing to think about is the objective functions of the algorithm of facebook right which is to say what do these things do yes um and 
right now it even we don't first of all they're secret so we don't know what they're so yes no <laughs> transparency so, so. <laughs> but not sure one can assume that uh the dominant thrust of what was behind the design parameters for this um, algorithm is a, basically profit for Facebook um, through these really well-specified dynamics of basically addiction uh, and attention capture yep. and the taking off of the mm. surplus behavior, uh, basically data and selling that data. And so we know that whole rigmarole. <clears throat> What's interesting is that we've never actually incentivized the algorithmic curation of content in terms of education. Like this is exactly what I was like trying to get to was as terrifying as me learning about the social media algorithms was and the amount of damage it's done. I thought, what if you turned it a couple of degrees to the left and had a theory of human development and that that was somehow the objective of it? Right. You know, if it could be curated not to just sell you stuff and keep you engaged, but to keep you developing, to keep you learning right. and like tailor made personalized education right. at a reasonable Correct. price of free. Yeah, and so that, and so, but it's what it's important to get here is like that's way less profitable. Um, <laughs> you know, because you uh, would need public, you'd need, yeah. you'd need to make public the objective functions of the algorithm and you would need to have some form of public support for what is basically an educational infrastructure that supports the human development of everyone. And so just like we're using psychology now, we being like the technologists who are building Facebook, just like they are using uh, the psychology now to make these things addictive, we could use different forms of psychology to make them educative educational but they would do things like force you not force you but tell you hey get the hell outside get off your screen <laughs> right? they would say they that would is say, a, yeah. this is one of the, in my book i talk about you know the true mm. digital education yeah. isn't just screen-based video games isn't or there? basically Khan academy which is basically tv on steroids um it is about the time and skill sharing networks and a whole bunch of other capacities that actually allow people to be together in real time and space. Uh, so what I call like a pop-up classroom, right? <clears throat> so like an actually deep educational algorithm would have the concerns of the whole body and mind of the student. Mm-hmm. So it would be very concerned about how long have they been on the screen? How much learning is actually taking place? When's the last time they were in a group conversation about X, Y, Z? And they would be thinking that about all the students. And so it could easily create many opportunities for pop-up classrooms. Uh, and then mm-hmm. if teachers and parents and other community members put in their skills, so they have a time and skill sharing network, then you can reveal from the implicit relationships in the community all of the possible dynamics of teacherly authority that could be in play. Right. Um, <clears throat> so this is like deep thinking about what would it look like to build a kind of social network and social media environment that was actually geared towards maximal educational benefit to each individual. Um, And to be clear, this isn't about making sure everyone has their facts straight and facts checking the internet and getting everyone on the same page about Mm -hmm. everything. Right. Because that's one way to Mm -hmm. say, well, the problem with the internet is the disinformation and all the stupid stuff spouted by people that I don't like and who, uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is different. This is a structural redesign. 
which would actually have the potential mm -hmm. to take someone in an irrational position, let's say captured by the technology now, put down a kind of rabbit hole of private groups and YouTube threads that get them deep into some crazy nook of conspiracy land, <clears throat> this thing we're talking about designing yeah. could rescue someone from that. <clears throat> could undo could that. undo that, and would it, up and out. Do you think it's it, very... So this is, you know, this is what... And the point is, I'm saying we've never incentivized people building this, right? Like if all of the knowledge yeah. and power in Facebook was turned towards building this and, and the, the concern is, yeah, yeah, it's, right, it's so, yeah, please. But yeah, sorry. I mean, that just, it's, um, it's so, I mean, I thought it's, it's very motivated. It seems to me to be, it's just like such a low cost kind of, I mean, I'm sure it would be expensive, but probably not the trillions that it costs to do Facebook. Um, and as the technology gets better, I mean, do you think there's a Moore's law kind of thing that that's inevitable or that it's that would require, you know, a a sort of radical shift in our cultural framework? I mean, is this, you know, is it a bottom up kind of thing? Is it a top down? I mean, um, you know, it's, it is political. It is very political. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Education. Uh, according to, to a lot of social theory, like Habermasian and otherwise, it is one of the root deep codes of any civilization. And it's one of the most powerful things to tinker with education, yeah. not just schooling, but the whole array of institutions that repopulate the social field from the youth, give them capacities and they take over, right? That social regeneration or social autopoiesis function messing with that so deeply political. And so there's a lot of reason to um, see the dynamics that are unfolding currently <clears throat> with uh, doubling down on schooling um, uh, mm -hmm. and basically taking digital as a form of television, as I mentioned. Um, kind of like the incapacity yeah. to actually see what the digital could do to education. Uh, mm -hmm. it's a, there's a political resistance to so fundamentally changing the nature of the social field by opening up conversation, um, basically. Uh, and that kind of, yeah, sorry, that just touched on something that, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment. I work with um, a tech events company, so I've been speaking to people from companies that are working on, like, metaverses web 3.0 stuff not the facebook metaverse but um that there's this huge explosion of i suppose new frontier tech and web 3.0 and things like that and again like that there seems to be not a lack of imagination because they're imagining lots of things but a lack of imagination to use that for this particular purpose which is the kind of the the benefit of the strengthening the individual towards maturity it all seems to be about video games mm -hmm. or profit or some kind of, I don't know, like a, a social world where you go watch concerts or something. But um, I wonder if you had any thoughts on that, you know, that emerging field of technology. And if you saw any, I don't know, like the decentralized education idea that there's something there maybe because that kind of goes beyond the individual politics mm -hmm. to a global kind of thing going on. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, the metaverse and deep virtual reality and augmented reality versions of what we currently have. Mm. We can speak to that. I mean, that mm. you can imagine nightmare scenarios, and I, I lay some of that out in the Consilience Project writing on information warfare. Um, uh, but as you're alluding to, there's like the potential for a, unprecedented educational technologies were they to be innovated in environments that had the right incentive structures that could have people actually not work towards something that's going to be maximally profitable for a return on the venture capital that gets the whole thing going, <laughs> but something that would be maximally socially yep. beneficial regardless of its ability to turn profit, which is what a lot of educational stuff looks like. Um, uh, because yep. it is, uh, it's a commons. It's an issue of the commons. Like you can't do educational work. Mm -hmm thinking you're going to create profit just like you can't care for the commons thinking you're going to create profit it's something we all need that keeps society going um and so there's a there's a way that there's a fundamental deep questioning that needs to take place about the environments in which technology innovation occur mm -hmm. um and the kind of like flippant techno-capitalist optimism that one feels in these environments that are tinkering with foundational educational stuff and and they think disruption yeah. is a good thing right and so well that's i mean it's so disruptive i mean the media environment that most people are growing up in at the moment is not conducive mm -hmm. to mental health or any sort of even just you know epistemology that makes sense like mm -hmm. there's just so many fragmented images of yeah. You know, I've done some of that where you mess around with an algorithm, you try and kind of train it a certain way on TikTok to give you certain types of content. Yeah. And then you can just look at things on fire yeah. all day, yeah. everywhere. And there's just no, there's no thought for the level of interference that that has had on, on people's lives. And I suppose that's where the, the possibilities of regulation and what Daniel and Tristan Harris were talking about that, you know, the authoritarian way or the possibility of a democratic technology, which is kind of what I'm messing around with yeah. here, I think. Um, yeah, the, 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 but, edu the yeah. educational technologies that make possible futures for open societies. Um, like right now, the yes. technology suite we're working with in the United States does not make, it forecloses on futures for open societies. Um, and the way China solved the problem as they speak to is super interesting, but also forecloses on the futures. For open societies, right? <laughs> yeah. So this question of also terrifying, terrifying. And, uh, but they're seeing the issue at least and responding to it. Um, whereas we are kind of in a tailspin basically. Um, and, and so regulation is scary because, again, these are educational things. This is a commons issue. And so the people need to actually uh, be involved in education. And it needs to be, like you were saying, distributed. Um, but right now I see basically the issue as a predatory, polluting infrastructure of like a for-profit surveillance-based uh, nudge machine. <laughs> uh, like massive, yeah. massive for-profit surveillance-based um, nudging machine for which they rent time mm -hmm. to anyone who's willing to pay to basically have people systematically surveilled. Uh, and so for me, it's, 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 mm -hmm. it's odd that uh, it's not a clearer kind of moral issue, especially with children under 18, right? So if instead of talking about, uh, instead of talking about customized mm. and micro targeted, if we use terms like 
programs of child surveillance and child manipulation. Like that's is what is actually occurring. This is a widely yes. distributed system of low grade child abuse for profit. Um, at the adult levels, you have something that is capable of running interference between citizens and the sovereign countries in which they live. <clears throat> and so you have a for-profit company exercising more control over American citizens than the United States government can exercise over those citizens. Cases in point would be protests, um, both left and right, where laws are broken on the street based on... Mm -hmm as far as I can tell, usually mostly predominantly just information yielded from social media and exchanges on social media. And it's clear the polarization dynamics that occur in social media and the way that those are profitable and et cetera. So you, at the adult level, you have actually a new technology that's been invented that is interfering with the sovereignty of the nation state itself. Um, and so at that level, 100%. it's a national security threat. It makes our way of life impossible. Um, and it's just a small rogue group of technologists who are doing this, who now control the massive nudge machine. And so we're using that machine to protect the machine. <laughs> right. And so it's when you have an industry that is massively pollutive and exploitative, usually you don't see it because it's like, oh, it's mining in the third world and like oil spills somewhere far away. And we should regulate that stuff. But these are industries that are creating extractive and polluting in your mind and in the minds of the Congress people yeah. who are trying to regulate the industry itself. So you have the situation of, um, uh, yeah, kind of like a grave epistemological danger, <laughs> uh, of who, who is in a situation that, um, so the first step then ends up being psychoeducational, which is to say the kind of work that's done when you're get somebody out of a cult <laughs> or get, yeah that's get i mean you know yeah, uh, decondition people like yovel noah harari i i watched an interview with him that i thought was very interesting that he talks about the 21st century is the age of hackable humans mm -hmm. whereby you know the, the the skill of the future is just going to be a level of introspection that you are able to be aware of when your desires are being contrived or that your demand is being implanted but i don't think we're aware of it to be honest i think it's the more i've looked at it the more i've kind of recognized it you can see the kind of pattern of dysfunction that has emerged because of it and it's kind of irresistible i don't know if you ever heard of matthew crawford's you know distracting ourselves mm -hmm. to death or kind of you know it's it's such like sugary food to people are such like it's so salient but it's actually creating people's salience landscapes mm -hmm. so it's like the thing we'd use to get away from it is actually being manipulated towards mm -hmm. it um and i i i don't know how i mean regulation for me has kind of made sense because it i just don't yeah i don't see another option with facebook really winding it down themselves or anything or people stopping using it because it's so creates the conditions for its own demand mm. yeah no you're right like i was saying they have this massive surveillance based nudge machine or you could call it a brainwashing machine if you want to get more hyperbolic but yeah either way they can obviously mm. use that to protect the machine <clears throat> and so that is a lot of what is occurring um but it's also the case that the yep. you know uh at least certain 
there's government intervention now also already. And so uh, the question of government regulation should also be asked in the same breath of government current use of. <laughs> because because <laughs> yeah. both political parties have bought access to the nudge machine, man. And they bought access to the brainwashing machine and they find it very useful. And many of the conversations I've been in, yep. people don't want to stop the nudge machine. They want to control the nudge machine. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't want to stop a culture war. They want to win and therefore end win. the culture war, right? Uh, when yeah. we've already demonstrated that you can't actually do that. Um, and so yeah. that's one thing to say. As you're talking about regulation, you have to realize that the people who it's like you're trying to stop the coke dealers in your city but all the Cong all the city you know all the, <laughs> all the all, cops are doing coke yeah. so it's like what do we do now? right <laughs> and this is a very similar this is situation. a big problem and so mm. so that's the first bit is that regulation is dicey also because the government would love to control information like as is obvious well that's i mean that's the whole hate speech thing and everything like that i'm like jesus christ that's i i haven't even really dipped into that because it's just such an impossible i mean good luck trying to figure that one out um but just the multiplicity of issues that have kind of resulted from it so one i guess one approach then is the regulation but that has its own issues then the other approach will be this you know the web 3.0 decentralized web whereby the central authorities have been taken away because of this risk factor and perhaps that becoming a more popular model I don't know if you've thought if that I would mean, be it's it's interesting because or... there's three levels of conversation, right? There's the like diagnosing the current problem, which is key because there's a lot of stuff that we need to figure out. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the like logistics of what to actually do about it. But both of those are actually dependent upon a third conversation, which we're getting into, which is about this third attractor, which they mentioned probably on the Joe Rogan podcast, right? Um, which is the mm -hmm. what does the actual possible and preferable future look like and so i was talking about education-centric algorithms right um so there's two things that need to happen one is we need to have very explicit public conversations about other ways this technology that could be used and to paint a picture of what the country could look like if we had a public infrastructure that was different um and then i think we need to invest and this is the logistical question of what do we do? I don't think we simply regulate Facebook. Um, I mean, we could try, but again, they've got us, all right? Um, I think what we need to do is invest in something different, something like the Manhattan Project mixed with the, the CCC, which is the Civilian Conservation Corps, right? So we need to find a way to fund, publicly fund a distributed effort to build an education and civic infrastructure, which would then basically have people would have a place to go away from Facebook that they know was healthy for mm -hmm. them. And then Facebook, if it would either become obsolete or, or would have to adapt or it would have to just be what it is, which is like a weird kind of entertainment where you get a simulation of reality yeah. and you live in a simulation of reality. And it's kind of like a massive multiplayer game, except it's in the real world. And that's what Facebook does. Right. But they're not a political news outlet or a public forum or the public sphere or civic society. It's like an entertainment simulation, virtual reality thing. That's cool where we do the actual stuff of civic discourse and education. Oh, the government funded this distributed effort to build an education infrastructure, which we all participated in and all the data is public and it's the taxpayer money that goes into it. And it has these specific design parameters and, that's where you go to yeah. think about complex political issues and to 
that's where the conversation well, is and that's it's a uh, social media world yes and it and it's also mm-hmm. where you go to engage with the internet in a way that maximally benefits you in terms of your human development um but what mm-hmm. do we mean by human development who answers that not the government <laughs> the people answer that but yeah because I've that. and this is very important is that if you talk about regulating yeah. it the the reasonable reaction you get usually from the right is well you're just going to shut down all of the forums that are so important for freedom of speech about fringe issues, right? Uh, so what do you yeah. mean by human development? Because uh, what I mean by human development is believing in Jesus eventually, right? Um, and, and so... Yes, and you can run into the, these right? all these so obstacles. It's very so. important for this type of infrastructure that the government doesn't top-down design, hey, we answered the question of what human development's about, and here's your educational infrastructure. <laughs> that they really fund, that they fund very publicly in a very unprecedented way. It would be like having the Manhattan Project and everyone sees what's going on, right? And it's not about killing people, it's about mm-hmm. saving everybody. <laughs> and specifically saving their, saving their, saving yeah. their minds, right? Uh, that's the only way I can see it forward. And again, the CCC, yeah. which a lot of people forget about, is um, this is very United States-centric, by the way, everything I'm saying. So I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, so is Facebook. Right, exactly. So, so the, the CCC, hopefully it filters the Civilian Conservation Corps, um, was something that was started during the Depression, uh, which was one of the first massively desegregated programs in American history uh, that taught thousands, hundreds of thousands of young men to read black and white, got them all over the country, building highways, building dams, restoring the national parks, sending money home to the cities that the government gave them from working in the CCC. And it changed the educational dynamic during the depression fundamentally, because you took a bunch of people who would have been itinerant, illiterate, (laughs) manipulable, agitatable, and taught them to read while building essential civic infrastructure um, for the country. And so something similar where we actually incentivize not just highfalutin scientists and stuff, but many, many, many people to get in on this project of building, you know, broad national level and local to town to neighborhood level uh, forms of civic infrastructure and participation. So for example, in Vermont, there's this thing called the front porch forum. It's gotten some good press. You can Google it. And you literally say, I'm Zach Stein. I live in this house. <laughs> like, and oh, you're my neighbor there. You're my neighbor. Then you know then the 100 or 200 people, right, in your town. Uh, and then you talk about what's happening in the town. Oh, there's a missing cat or whatever. And sometimes serious stuff comes up. And it's completely different tone and tenor of conversation because you know where everybody lives and who everybody is. And you know also that you have a shared interest in the nature of the town. Um, and so there's a lot of things that people talk about doing with regulation at a broad scale, which would come out of the woodwork naturally if we started a decentralized attempt to build a, an educational infrastructure. Um, some of the problems have been solved at local levels, um, but there hasn't been, as I said, this incentivization. And it can't be like a mm-hmm. government, corporate, sponsored, uniting to then give it to the people. It can't be that. It has to be government <laughs> possibly corporate yeah. corporate sponsorship across a wide array of philanthropy giving to the people of all walks of mm-hmm. life, um, possibly tied into something like basic income. I mean, there's, there's many variables, mm-hmm. but this is the level we have to think outside the box. It's a Manhattan project issue of national. Yeah. National and does this theory. relate to something which you talk about, um, the world philosophy 
something that really appealed to me to be honest something that i think is kind of has emerged anyway because of the internet i think social media has a philosophy built into it codified kind of in its algorithms and with algorithms and artificial intelligence you kind of you build a philosophy into it so in order to build this type of civic system would you have to come up with a world philosophy to do it would it be a global oh i mean if you built it right it would be the thing that would allow it would be an articulate the, world philosophy to emerge. Like, um, yes, it would be, it would and be, you could do it that way. It would way. be the infrastructure that would facilitate something like a global renaissance and enlightenment, if you forgive those mm. terms. And there's many definitions of those that don't have to be Western-centric. Yep. Um, but it would allow for a planetary revision mm. of what human culture mm. was about, and that would be... A, p- a potential yes. like broadly overlapping consensus world philosophy, right? Because um, like when Ken Wilber tries to create an integral theory, or other people try to create a global meta theory, that's one person, <laughs> right? And it's a it's a first. Yeah. And I talk about it in the book as like these are first attempts, like a sense that we're at a new phase in history um, where we can't have these parochial nationalistic philosophies that we need these planetary ones but not planetary in ambition for yeah. power but planetary and planetary in explanatory scope if you will uh and yeah and so that that's you know, that's very important but i wouldn't come at it with top down and then build the thing Mm-mm, you have to build the thing well that's i mean that's the annoying part isn't it that it's like you can't if it's if it's not a one person philosophy it's not like some you know can't can come along and write right. this world philosophy thing would have to emerge out of the facilitation of the broad spectrum conversation yeah. and it's not that it wouldn't um, be like an elite conversation it would mm-hmm. it would just be an elite like and basically an elite defined in terms that are not the terms of our world <laughs> if you will like so yeah you know mm. This is the the main issue, and back to the issue of teacherly authority, right? So the idea that the yes. the elite that we've inherited, cognitive elite, political elite, economic elite, the elite that we've inherited, that is bullshit. So then you dismiss the idea of cognitive elites and political elites and economic elites in general, when in fact there are those and they exist. <laughs> uh, and anything like yep. a world philosophy would need to find the actually existing cognitive elites that are not just the parts mm-hmm. of our that are not just the parts of our civilization of, who are simulating being the cognitive elite, right? Like a Steven Pinker mm-hmm. or something. Right. This is again bureaucracy. Yeah. Do you think that's that's a stumbling block to this actually happening? Is the inability for us to measure that or to have any sort of like qualitative standard? Like it's not like you can get all the people with the most views on, you know, YouTube or whatever, and they get to figure no, it but out. Like there's got to be. There are ways. Like you know, if you have. Mm-hmm. So you have to, like, if we go back down to the basic context in which teacherly authority were exercised, like the home, right, the mother and the child, right, broader dynamics of community and family conversation, uh, and you look at how those gradients of capacity and the the nature of those conversations and how resolution is brought to them, um, that's where you have to look for the basic patterns that we're looking at. Um, So you're not looking for uploading in terms of popularity but you are looking for many people vectoring towards them that's the most rational thing i've heard <laughs> right uh, yeah and so this way of like kind of again slightly changing the existing tech stack 
to repurpose some of the metadata to upvote the most reasonable stuff as opposed to upvoting the most hilarious or offensive or crazy stuff, right? So subtle tweaks, but again, those algorithms need to be public because we need to know why it is that. Is it actually that that's the most reasonable or is that what the the government wants me to think is the most reasonable, right? And so in order to get, you have to have the whole thing splayed open, but like I'm not a computer guy, but if I know it's split open, I know computer guys, they, you know what I mean? So it's like you, there are those gradients of capacity. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's going to solve every problem, but we need to have mm-hmm. a civic infrastructure that is robust enough that small pockets of collaboration or large, you know, meta pockets mm-hmm. of collaboration can spontaneously emerge just as a result of people using mm-hmm. the civic infrastructure. Yep. Um, so right now the, the attention's all vectored towards what, the algorithm vectors it towards more or less irrespective of the quality of it. But what if the stuff that was actually capturing our attention was the stuff that, you know, ought to be capturing our attention. And so the ought there is a big deal, but that's the way we need to be thinking. Mm. Um, that is a super big deal because one thing that I really looked into when I was first to because obviously monetizing attention, there's I don't know if you know James Williams. He wrote a book called Stand Out of Our Light. He was a Google engineer, but then became involved in eth- applied ethics. Um, and he's written a PhD thesis called Freedom and Persuasion in the Attention Economy mm-hmm. on the attention economy. But he suggested that attention the proper functioning of attention could be used as an ethical model for the deployment and design of new technologies. So that if you go into the structure of attention itself, how it functions, how what we find salient versus voluntary effort, I've done a lot of reading on kind of the ethics of attention, that you could construct from that Mm -hmm. a better model um, rather than one that takes advantage of attention. Or it takes advantage of the weakness. Yeah, and that's a good way to think about it. And I just am applying that also at the higher social field. So at a, at a baseline level, mm-hmm. I think you could look at a whole bunch of stuff from neuroscience about is your thing yep. addictive? <laughs> is your thing dysregulating? <laughs> is your thing dysregulating attention? You know, is your thing yep. you know on and on at that baseline level? And it's it's hard to define normal attention because there's a natural variability, mm-hmm. but I think it's easy yep. to detect pathological patterns of detention of of attention. Um, yep. And so, mm-hmm. th- so that's one layer. But then a layer up there, there's something like the domain of personality development, and then social development, yes. and then those dynamics of teacherly authority. So, like, is your technology actually able to get people into a, a relationship of non-institutionalized, legitimate teacherly authority? given how we know how those things work anthropologically across all cultures and all times, or does your thing violate those mm-hmm. conditions and make it so any relationship yep. in your medium is always going to be transactional and not enough trust and one party with more information than the other manipulative uh, and et cetera, which means like no teacherly authority could almost never occur in the technology you just designed. And it gives you kind of a way of stacking from the to examine the different layers, I suppose, of verification almost. Mm-hmm. Like I was looking at attention because I felt like it was the smallest kind of unit of the the issue or that kind of yep. the problem with social media. Like if people are paying to capture people's attention, if they do that all of the time, we're screwed. Like because obviously attention is necessary to solve problems. Attention is more important than knowledge because to learn mm-hmm. anything, you have to pay attention to it. So it has this generative function that for human beings to develop, they have to pay attention. 
So I felt like attention and development were mm-hmm. also kind of going like it functions by developing and it develops by functioning. So if you could create a technology that, you know, treated attention properly, it would be also developmental properly. I don't know. That might be a bit risky. Well, but. <laughs> and so, again, it's like that's the most basic thing I would look for is the effect of the technology mm-hmm. on the normal workings of the human attention system. But I could imagine technology that didn't really mess with the normal workings of my attention system that was built by an mm-hmm. authoritarian government to basically isolate me from my parents and indoctrinate me into mm-hmm. a new belief system about the government. Right? Like, but it would do so yeah. in a way that didn't addict me, that made me interested, so I returned to it enough. And over five months, I consume, you know, whatever healthy amount it would be consumed. Uh, but it would be completely inappropriate as an educational technology because you, all you did was factor for the non-dysregulation of attention when you actually need to also factor for. It's like it's not a. It's a you have to look at that and then also factor for uh, things <laughs> yeah. like personality development uh, and think. I was just about to think, touch on that as well. Authority, specifically, mm. what are the types of communities that are possible in these contexts? Um, so. Yeah, but it's a great place to start because yeah, right but, now that's the place to start. Like we have a, a whole generation that has basically brain damage as a result of social... Attention is being just yeah. poured down the drain. Yeah, exactly. And that also like arrested development isn't just like, oh no, you didn't kind of do the thing. It, that's actually damage to a person. Right. So that if all of your attention is being flushed away and you're not developing properly, you're damaged in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um and that that causes a lot of problems. But to come back to personality, that was another thing that I was looking at in terms of social media changing the habits that change characteristics, that change personality traits across time. Colin DeYoung, who I'm actually going to have on the podcast next month, um, I can't wait to talk to him, he talks about rewiring the dopaminergic system. So when you change characteristics, it changes the underlying personality trait over time. Um, And so if the technology has that effect would we then have to specify something like an ideal personality i mean would you have to or would it have to encompass transformation of personality you know if you could understand how that you know how that could be you know properly done i feel like there's an element of that maybe in teaching where you're like okay you need to work on this or this is how you progress you know if you're maybe you're too agreeable and you need to get a little bit more disagreeable or you're you know super extroverted but you need to learn how to be on your own or you're super like you know yeah i mean again it's like mm -hmm. what i think we're doing here is establishing certain kind of like Mm -hmm. design parameters for healthy educational technologies and i'm seeing what i'm identifying Mm -hmm. here are like red flags so i'm not even talking about what ideally it would look like what's the because there's also the question of what is the ideal way to cultivate your attention? Like, do you need to be a goddamn Buddhist monk yep. or can you just be a dude who can read for 45 <laughs> minutes? Right. And how much variation in ADHD is a science pathological. It's just an individual difference. So there's also a normative conversation mm-hmm. in attention, but it, it's yep. again, so I'm saying, well, let's not talk about, is it optimizing attention? Let's talk about, is it really messing mm-hmm. with attention? Pathological yep. diagnostics is what we're looking mm-hmm. for. So similarly with personality, I'm not saying who you ought to be. <laughs> I'm just saying like there yeah. are w- things that happen in people's personalities that are, they don't like, no one around them likes that are symptomatic yeah. neuroses, which are diagnosable mm-hmm. as a result of 
of overuse of social media, like narcissism increasing, for example, is one. Um, and so there I'm looking for some set of traits, which obviously go up when you have poorly designed stuff and not saying about what people ought to be like, but just, yeah, that's a much better way. It's just unhealthy. Like Mm -hmm. the, the Mm -hmm. obsessive, obsessive, compulsive narcissism, Mm -hmm. uh, and then also the identity formation in social media environments being the predominant environment of identity mm-hmm. formation. Like there's also just simple ratios of time spent in identity constituting conversations and where are those taking place? And then what are the things that populate them? Is it memes that are micro-targeted to affect your identity? Or is it long form conversations with teachers and other people in your environment? So there's also just metrics there. The, the phrase I used I, uh, get from Robert, uh, uh, Lifton is, uh, who studied, uh, reeducation camps in communist China is the thought terminating cliche, Whoa. right? The thought terminating cliche, <laughs> uh, what so is the that thought mean? terminating cliche is in a conversation, mm-hmm. someone says something which mm-hmm. stops thought because of the way the phrase is used. So the one I prefer is like the science is settled. You're like, oh, <laughs> that's yes. basically a signal to yes. me a, to not. A huge amount of right, those to, at the moment so as well, thought, to be well, honest. That's my point are... is that one of the things that you can, one other like diagnostic category for personality development is how stereotyped is their identity and the way they understand themselves and how many thought terminating cliches populate key places in their identity formation. And when you're in a saturated social media environment with tons of propaganda and you are in it for seven, eight hours a day, getting in arguments with people who may or may not actually be people, but actual bots, like Mm -hmm. then there's a question of when (laughs) I talk to you, like as a clinical psychologist and I'm like, Hey, tell me about your life. And, what you believe and who you are and what you value and how much of that is really clearly thought through uh, and worked out through embodied experience and conversation and how much am I getting of that is basically a Mm -hmm. uh, social media simulation induced thought terminating cliche based identity, right? It's the issue and that's just a diagnostic category. And so that's the sense we have sometimes of like what's happening, the superficiality of people's mm. identities as a result of the basically being mostly constituted mm. in this again like i said entertainment slash simulation slash advertising augmented reality world which is what social media is it's not a place you go to get news or talk to your friends it's a place that's systematically augmenting your sense of what is real yes it's editing you in a certain mm-hmm. sense to continue using the applications um but there's something that you were touching on there as well, which is the the values. Something that became quite obvious to me was that the the design of a kind of inculcates values in you. There's that relationship between attention and value that you pay attention to what you value. It's a a kind of prioritization between what you find salient and what you don't, and that the changing of that salience landscape also changes the values of the person mm-hmm. that's using it. So that for a generation that's grown up in social media that and it's come at a time where there isn't the ethical education this kind of ties into the other thing as well the lack of an ethical framework makes you very vulnerable to your value system being decided by Mm -hmm. a tech company in america um and yeah that kind of but then i suppose would this 
the system, this ideal educational technology system we're messing around with, um, so the values that that inculcated, because you would gain values by mm-hmm. using it, I suppose, um, yeah. would they be, yeah, they would have to be, I mean, how could yeah, you, you specify you'd those want before? publicly articulated values that form the basis of the publicly yeah. constructed civic educational infrastructure, and you'd want uh, <laughs> one that didn't tell you what to value, but except for the ones yeah. that were kind of built in, you know, like, uh, but in terms of more specific values, specific mm. worldviews, religious beliefs, uh, unique ideas about the value of relationship, friendship, pets, animals, like all of that stuff, uh, which is to say these deep questions of which people have legitimate disagreements about. <laughs> what, what the infrastructure yeah. would need to do is not tell you what to value, it would need to ensure that your values were your own, which is to say that you were protected mm-hmm. from coercive mm-hmm. implanting of foreign value, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that you got your yeah. value through your spontaneous and autonomous mm-hmm. conversations and learnings mm-hmm. rather than being micro-targeted mm-hmm. and basically hypnotized into mm-hmm. holding certain values. So again, it's not about over-determining the educational content. It's about setting protections and basically creating uh, educational spaces um, with yeah. minimal value cooked in um, something like the value of learning right like one way to talk about yeah. kind of like non-specific non-western definitions of the renaissance and enlightenment which occur you know we've got it in in the bengal renaissance we've got an ethiopian enlightenment we've got uh probably a, a you know, an Islamic <laughs> renaissance. It depends on who, which historian you talk to, but these same patterns, yeah. right? And there's an emerging field of world history that looks at like these common patterns. Um, and the common pattern yeah. isn't that it's about individualism or science. It's not that it's actually when a culture increases its capacity to learn and it does so intentionally. Like it says, all right, we want to across the board be able to learn more mm. together about the world. Um, and but you're not specifying you're not what, specifying what has you're to just be increasing your overall capacity for learning and valuing the distribution mm. of that capacity for greater learning. And so similarly, in this mm. case, it's not about determining what that curriculum is for the future, um, but it's about yep. making a commitment to increasing our capacity for learning, not our capacity to tell people what to think. <laughs> Which is what some yeah. tool, which is what you could <laughs> do. You though. could you could repurpose this mm-hmm. as a tool to just basically have. You could basically sell the nudge machine to just one client. You could do that. <laughs> right? You sell, it. but then you've kind of just done. You know, you've in trying to undo the thing, right? You've but the point is that some people think education worse. is just telling people what to think, and I'm saying education is actually creating yeah. conditions where learning can take place. And an educational institution mm-hmm. is an institution that has a commitment to that first and foremost before quote-unquote indoctrinating anyone into any specific ideas you need to make sure that they're equipped and the people around them and the environment is equipped that learning can take place which means mistakes happen (laughs) Uh, which means disagreements get worked out um, and not kind of weaponized and there's a whole bunch of other factors that allow learning to take place and that demonstrate a commitment to learning as opposed to a commitment of conformity (laughs) a commitment to learning uh, is 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 the basis of, I think, a feasible open society. Um, 
so that that's where the the broader that's really interesting that everybody kind of i'm thinking of this kind of warrior scholars thing but it's a big thing in ninjutsu in that kind of framework of uh, weird guys like i don't know if you know miyamoto musashi and those kind of he's an old bushido guy but um that they had this kind of warrior philosophy but that the warrior philosophy was also of being a lifelong learner like a lot of them were kind of also sculptors and painters and did these different things and it was kind of the path of discipline actually made you in a sense um to desire that kind of constant not that you had to there was a specific thing you had to learn but more that the learning was to be a constant kind of practice um of continuous development and so yeah that it might be more motivational in that sense maybe yeah and it's interesting because it's also just like it's an i it's a it's a pretty universal ideal that we can hold about societies that they would want to yep. open themselves to more learning and not be closed to learning. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of a very broad definition mm-hmm. where there's a lot of pluralism that can take place in there. As long as the commitment to learning yep. does it's not about weaving a simulation and then you learn about the simulation. Learning is reality dependent. So learning is a commitment to relate yep. to reality together as a society. So learning. So that's very valuable. Mm -hmm. That same idea can be used as a very general way to think about identity development and personality development. And so this warrior ethos of lifelong learning, it's actually a commitment to be continually in touch with reality (laughs) and to want. Mm. Yeah. And that's the Socrates thing as well. I mean, the whole, uh, you know, knowing that, you know, nothing, it's, it's not that it's kind of more of a statement of that. I'm continually pursuing truth rather than staying fixed with what, I've already got. And if you and if you've experienced yeah. it, which is to say, if you've done deep learning in one domain, like in a, the martial martial art, mm-hmm. uh, then you can generalize that skill of relating yeah. to reality, and so that's what makes you know, like some domains of learning so powerful, and that's what could make a, a civic infrastructure minimally skeletally powerful because you could focus on mm. the capacity for learning or upgrading capacity for learning. Um, that is brilliant uh, <laughs> that, that it could be scalable in the sense that if people were given that capacity they would generalize themselves right. to that's the idea that more the best teacher you know what's the saying like you don't give a man a fish you give him a fishing pole and teach him how to fish so like the best teacher yeah doesn't make you dependent upon their teacherly authority they want to obsolete that as quickly and reasonably as they can yeah. Uh, and then even more so they would want to equip you to be able to learn more after you've, you've interacted with them, you know? Um, and, yep. uh, yeah. So the, I think, you know, John Dewey said something to that effect that, you know, learning, you know, good learning because good learning opens up the possibility for more future learning. Right. Uh, there are some forms of learning, like you could learn a thought terminating cliche, uh, that mm. cuts off the possibility of future learning. But you learned it, but now you've cut off the possibility of future learning because you use it like a thought-terminating cliche. Uh, whereas mm. in other domains, it's clear that you know you learn, and then that, in fact, you know you're learning when you more vistas open up, and you're like, oh no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I that's read that well, book that's now. Certain, I know yeah. how much I don't know. You know, like. <laughs> Yes, that's definitely a phenomenon. I've I had that when I started learning about genetic or epigenetics, and I just realized that I knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that it was I'd completely wasted all of my time, um, and that's it. Really, wow. Um, there's so much to digest there, and so much to think about. Um, but yeah, thank you, yeah. Zach. I think that's a good place to right. put a pin in it. You have. 
and I'm going to keep learning now. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Me message I'll take away. <laughs> but I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Zach Stein. Uh, you can check him out at his website and also definitely purchase his book, Education in a Time Between Worlds, on Amazon or from any good retailer online. I've also included a link in the show notes. And as I mentioned at the beginning, it's an amazing book if you're interested in this technological educational space and where that is going to go so yes highly recommend it and definitely check out his work on youtube um it's always hours well spent listening to zach i could do it all day and this podcast was so much fun i really hope we get to do it again but yeah subscribe on youtube subscribe on spotify wherever you're listening stay involved send me weird stuff on the internet give me shout outs and stuff uh, trying to get off social media so if you want to sign up to my mailing list on my website that would be great because as i'm sure you heard in this podcast um social media not so good All right have a good one <laughs>